0: Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our kind leaders will pass one out to you. This is the last chapter in the book of Daniel. The last part in our study we've entitled King of Kings. Daniel chapter 12. The title of this message is The Final King, The Final King. Daniel chapter 12, when you're there, say there. If you're not there yet, say wait up. Daniel chapter 12, it's only 13 verses, so we're going to actually read it all together. And we're going to stand up, if you wouldn't mind. Hold on. This is not a Joey Rozek. This is just, we're standing up. That's all it is. Stand up. We're going to read together. I do that sometimes, okay? But if we can channel some of the power. I'm ready. I'm kidding. Okay. Standing up does not involve your mouth. I think. I don't know. I never took anatomy either, but... Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to read all 13 verses. We'll pray, and then I'll have you be seated. At that time, Michael, who is the archangel, shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people... And there shall, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Talk about the tribulation. Michael the archangel who actually had a special watch over the people of Israel. That's what he's talking about. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Don't tell your parents that the word shut up is in the Bible, but it is. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others which are two angels, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, who held his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will rise your inheritance at the end of the days. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom from heaven this evening as we read your word. Show us, Lord, in the way that we should go, that we would not depart from the words in the book of your law, that we would follow you, sanctify ourselves, knowing that our time is short, Lord. pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Daniel chapter 12 The very end of the book, we know that the first half of the book of Daniel is all about prophecy. Sorry, take that back. I'm not thinking. The first half of the book of Daniel is all narrative. This is the story of Daniel and his friends. And how God was able to deliver not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But also Daniel as he was thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel was known as one who's able to interpret dreams, not just for one, but a couple different rulers of empires of the ancient world. And so Daniel shows us how to live godly in a world that is not godly. Daniel, for us, gives us a template so that we can say, if I want to know how to live my life in a world that is in opposition to Jesus, this is how you do it. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you pray three times a day regularly and you have your set thing, right? But that does mean that you're taking steps to what is called sanctification, sanctify yourself. You are setting yourself apart for the Lord, knowing that you are called to a very special purpose. Setting apart is just you saying, I know that I'm not made to just be normal or average. I know God wants to use me in a powerful way And therefore, I'm going to do something different with my life. This is what was called in the Old Testament, being a Nazarite. Being a Nazarite means that you did certain things, like you didn't touch dead bodies, you didn't drink alcohol, and you didn't cut your hair. Kind of weird, but it was symbolic that you were setting yourself apart to the Lord for a special purpose. And this is what made Samson strong, that God had set Samson apart. But the good news is, even when Samson failed, remember what happened? He cut his hair, and then the pagan ruler said, ha, let his hair grow back. It doesn't really matter because his God has abandoned him. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. He didn't set himself apart for the Lord. And guess what happened? At the very end of his life, what happened? You know the story. Samson was still able to regain power because God in his grace, despite our unfaithfulness, was faithful to his people. And so Samson's death, he actually... Defeated more of Israel's enemies in his death than in his entire lifetime, the Bible tells us. So all throughout the Bible, what you see is even though people fail to set themselves apart, God is still faithful. He still shows his power. But the question is, do you want to be a part of it? Do you want your life to be used in such a way that you knew that I I took every step of faith that God asked me to take? I was obedient in everything God asked me to do. And wow, it was worth it. Or are you going to look at your life and say, man, I can't believe I missed so many opportunities. I can't believe how unfaithful I was, and thank God that he brought me out of it. I can look at my life, and and to be honest, so many times I'm like, how in the world did I make it? How did I make it? When I was the most weird person in, in high school youth group, when I was a kid who, like, maybe did stupid stuff just like anybody else, and then I watched my friends fall into sin and—, and You know, you kind of look at your life and you're saying, but, like, why me? How come I wasn't one of those people that just went the way of sin and followed after my own passions and pursuits and whatever? How come I didn't remain lost and others did? I can't really explain that to you except for this, that God in his grace decided to choose you to be here tonight. And he chose me to be here tonight. And I'm thankful and I want to live my life in such a way to show that gratitude back to him. I don't want to take it for granted, you know. I don't want to say, like, oh, wow, it's amazing that I'm here. It's amazing I'm alive. It's amazing I have breath in my lungs. And who cares? I'm just going to do whatever I want. But to look at that and say, like, I don't have to be here. I don't have to be healthy. I don't have to have a family. I don't have to have all these things. But God in his grace decided to give me these things, and now I want to use these things to worship him and not seek my own glory. So the story of Daniel is to set yourself apart. He denied himself from the king's delicacies, the things that the world would esteem seem and, and want and desire. And he says, this isn't about me. Even when um, he interpreted the king's dreams, they wanted to crown him. They wanted to give him robes. They wanted to do all these things for him. And he says, no, you can keep the stuff. I don't really need it because his treasures were in heaven. He understood the distinction. And even if he received those robes, that same king got executed that night. He would have lost it right away. He understood that any crown that the world gives you is temporary and really not worth it. So why not labor after the things that will last forever? And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is the things that you do at the end, will it be worth it? Will your life be worth it that you gave everything to the Lord, that you walked in his ways and God used you, and you can, you can say, I'm glad that I took that risk. I'm glad that I took that step of faith. I'm glad that I obeyed the Lord. So in Daniel chapter 12, we are enclosing not only the book of Daniel, but we are enclosing the history of the world. We're looking at flash forward, we're looking at another prophecy, but this is what's going to happen at the very end of human history. And so right in the first verses, what we see here is a time of judgment. You have Michael the archangel is going to stand up, and he's going to uh, have the people of Israel, more specifically, be delivered. And it says, everyone who is found written in the book. So you have God's people that are delivered. And this is a, a theme all throughout the Bible, that when God is judging the world of sin, that he also takes a remnant of people out. He takes people that are set apart for Him and rescues them from the coming judgment, and that's something to be thankful for. We're going to hit that in a second, but before we go there, I just want to I want to bring something up to you. Um, so you hear the you hear the narrative about Daniel. You know his story. You know his life. You look at Daniel chapter twelve. So when we read like the rapture stuff, like may, has anybody um, read or seen the movie Left Behind? Read the book or seen the movie? Okay. So most of you guys know about it. Like there's a movie about like what happens when the church is raptured, taken up into heaven, everybody's left behind and stuff. It's like probably a good movie. I don't know. It's kind of freaked me out when I was little. But for you guys, I think, and and myself too, it's easy to look at these things. And because we have no conception of what this is like, we almost write it off. It's like, does that, is that really going to happen, right? And people that aren't Christian, you look at this stuff, and you're like, oh, boy. They believe you're going to be, like, flying into heaven or floating or something, and your, like, clothes are going to be left behind. I never got that, by the way. Why don't your clothes go with you? I never understood that. Like, the rapture movies, they always have the clothes, like, on the ground. Like, I guess you can take your clothes with you. I just, I would want to. Moving really fastly to the next point, though. Um, When a lot of things in the Bible seem strange, I think that's okay. But I think what's most important is to know the difference between knowing facts and actually knowing the person of Jesus. I think this is this is a very important distinction, okay? That we aren't putting our trust necessarily in facts, although we believe that the, uh, the Bible is factual. But we're placing trust in the person behind the word of God, which is Jesus. Okay? This is why this is so important. I'm not saying the, the Bible's not factual. It is, absolutely. But let me prove something to you. Facts don't actually help anybody face fears. Now I'm going to explain it. Let's say, does anyone have a fear of heights? By a show of hands, anybody? Anybody afraid of ro- roller coasters? Okay, maybe it's like three people. So maybe you won't relate with this. But like, whatever fear you have, I'm just going to use my because I hate roller coasters. Sorry. If you are about to go on one of the rides on Great Adventure, back in the day, it was something called Viper. Just if anyone remembers Viper, you probably don't want to remember it because I, like, I, like injured myself because I was, like, the whole time I'm just holding on for dear life because I'm going to, like, fall out because the thing's so loose and shady and that's why I had to tear it down. But, like, all the way up, this is what you're saying. You're saying, I know that this will, this will be structurally sound I know that I'm going to make it. I'm going to get on the roller coaster. I'm going to get off the roller coaster. Every one of my body parts will still be intact. I'm going to be okay. That's what you tell yourself, right? And you lo- you can look at all the statistics. Only 500 people a year die on these things. Who knows? Right? But, like, seriously, like, not a lot of people die. And the News blows that up, whatever. So you can know all the facts about it, but then you get on the roller coaster, are like, oh, my gosh. That doesn't keep you from being afraid, right? How many of us, if we're honest... The things that we're afraid about, the way that we combat it is that we keep on telling ourselves facts. You know, it's really not that scary. Um, You know, like, okay, here's another genuine fear, I'll just be honest. Locking up this building, the main building, late at night, that's scary. And I can know a ton of things. Like, I'm a believer in Jesus. There's no demons in this building. But this would be a great time for a demonic attack, right? Like, by myself, middle of the night, giant building, which is a church. I don't know. And, like, you're telling all, you're, like, talking to yourself, like, it's not going to happen. He who's in me is greater than he who's in the world. You know, like, whatever. But you're still scared. You're home alone. And you hit, like, a plate, you know. Like, did I ever tell you this story? I probably shouldn't tell you this story. It's so embarrassing. There was a bunch of robberies in my neighborhood, like, two years ago. And it was, like, the street in front of me and the street behind me. And my parents were away somewhere for, like, the entire weekend. And so, like, You just, your mind plays games with you. I'm trying to go to bed at like midnight. I'm like, fine, totally fine. And then I hear like the house creaking, you know? And then I start like, my mind starts playing tricks on me. Like, what if there's a robber in the house right now? Did you check every closet? Like, no, but it's probably fine. So I'm trying to go to bed. And then like I hear something like drop and I freak out. And I call Joe Fisher in California. (laughs) And like, it was just an instant reaction. I pick up my phone and I start calling him because I knew in California he's like three hours behind so he's going to be awake. And I didn't think about this at all. I just called him like, hey, man. How's it going? He's like, dude, isn't it like one o'clock there? Yeah. I just wanted to call you to see how you're doing. (laughs) It's like, "I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing fine. I'm like, I'll be honest. I'm a little scared. A little scared right now. And Joe's like 19 at the time, you know. I'm like a grown man. But So here's the point. Like, I can tell myself all kinds of different things, but it doesn't actually help you when you're afraid. What does help you is experience. What helps you is placing trust in a person, okay? If you have experience and you have knowledge and a relationship of a person, you can trust that. If a person proves themselves faithful, you don't have to worry about it. Like, is that person going to show up? Like, they never flake. And, And actually, you'll get worried, right, if they're late and they're never late, Like, this person's never late, and that's what's going to make you afraid, right? If a person has proven themselves to be trustworthy, that actually will help you alleviate fear. Experience can either traumatize you, right? Like you had a bad experience with a roller coaster or whatever it was, cars or whatever it is. Or you can have a great experience, and that thing is hard to shake off. We are more experiential beings than we are factual beings, unfortunately. I wish it was factual because we could just tell ourselves things and we believe it. But here's why this is so important. Because so many people read the facts of the Bible, and they're like, I don't know if this is doing anything for me. And it's not even a matter of truth. It's a matter of they have not experienced Jesus. They don't know him. Remember, Jesus is going to say to many on the day that he sees them face to face at the end of the world and say, you know, you said to me, we prophesied in, in your name and, and cast out demons in your name, all that stuff. But I never knew you. I don't know who you are. It's because we've not had an experience with Jesus. I've used this illustration before, but it's worth saying again. You know, like, all of us can know a lot of facts about Justin Bieber. All of us can, right? Like, you can be stalkerish and look up, you know, his five past ex-girlfriends and when he was born and where he lives and all kinds of crazy facts. You can know everything there is to know about Justin Bieber. But if you ask Justin Bieber, like, hey, do you know who Alan Khan is? He'd be like, no, I have no idea who that person is, Right? It's not enough to know facts about Jesus. You just become a stalker. You need to actually know Jesus. You need to have a relationship with him. Have him as your friend. Have him as your Lord, as your Savior. So this is the question I want to pose to you tonight. If it's the case that we are to have a relationship with Jesus, not just facts about Jesus, how much do you know about Jesus versus how much have you experienced with Jesus? When you have those doubts, those moments of like, is this true? Is this real? Do you have an experience to actually back that up? Say, no, but I know. I know that I know. If if God isn't real, then like all those times I've cried out to him, make no sense. All those times I've opened up his word and he just gave me the perfect verse for the perfect time, that makes no sense. All those times I've been in prayer circles and then someone shared something that ministered to my heart and it was like God was speaking right to my heart. The times I was in a sermon and I knew God's voice was speaking, all that just suddenly doesn't make sense. And you're like, I would much rather believe my experience than believe my intellect. I'm not saying to cast out your intellect, not at all. God is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. We believe that. Facts. I'm just saying that facts aren't going to help you when you're discouraged. Facts aren't going to help you when you're afraid. Jesus will help you when you're afraid. Jesus will be the friend that's there for you. He will be the one who delivers you. So you have to place your trust in him and not in a set of ideas. The book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. The Jewish people believe the Old Testament, but they have not found Jesus. And it's so important to make that distinction. So in verse 1, we see that it says, At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now this book that is opened at uh, the time of judgment could be a record of every sin that you've ever committed if you don't have faith in Jesus. Or it could be the book of life, where as that book is opened, every name that's put in there will live on for eternity with Jesus in heaven. So it says, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Now, how many of us, if we're honest, are looking forward to that day? The day that we're delivered. The day that Jesus returns. All of sin is being punished. All of sin is being vanquished from the earth. Right? We look at the judgment chapters in in the Bible, and oftentimes, we're not that excited. If we're honest, right? The idea of every bit of evil vanquished from the earth is like, that's nice. That's great. But we're not really thinking, like, actually, like, I'm having a pretty good time. And we think about, like, well, Lord, you can come back just after I get married. You can come back after I have kids. After I have, you know, like, we just give all these excuses as to why maybe it's not a good time to come back now. But do you realize that we are in a world where we need deliverance? We need a Savior to bring us out? I would say maybe the reason why we're not looking forward to Deliverance Day is because we live in America. Our biggest struggles are often inward. Now, I'm not trying to demean anyone's struggles here. Some of you have in your past abuse, have in your past cancer and sickness and all kinds of different things. Don't want to minimize that. But a lot of us, our struggles are inward. Relationships, our biggest struggle is who I'm going to marry, who's dating who, who betrayed who what college I'm going to go to, what kind of job I'm going to get. These are our biggest struggles, the things that plague our minds. Will I be successful? Will I make a lot of money? Will anybody like me? But in many countries, people are wondering if they will even survive the day. Do you realize that? A good majority of the world, I really believe this, a good portion and majority of the world, people are wondering, like, will I survive? Will I make it past today? Listen to this quote I read in... um, in Forbes. It says that America's bottom ventile is still richer than most of the world. That is, the typical person in the bottom 5% of the American income distribution is still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. So here's the comparison it makes. America's poorest are, as a group, about as rich as India's richest. So the bottom 5% of American poor, um, I almost said in the world, in America, are still richer than 68% of the world. That's incredible. So do we see that we have affluence? We have a lot of possessions. We have a lot going for us. Do we recognize our need to be delivered from idolatry, from sin, from selfishness, self-seeking? Instead, we're supposed to be using all this abundance to reach those people in need, to reach the 68%. Imagine if that's what we focused on. Instead of thinking about ourselves and what we're gonna get this Christmas and what we're gonna do and and who we're gonna marry and all that stuff, which is great. Great to think about those things. I think about those things for sure, especially the marriage thing. But imagine we start thinking about the 68%. That's what I really want you to focus on. If there's anything you take away from tonight, focus on the 68%. What is one way you can be like thinking outside of your circle? And you'd be thinking about other people, especially the people that are in need. Here's something that young people, myself included, I'll I'll say, like, teenagers up to, like, 20-something. Here's something we don't like to talk about. Tithing, offerings. Why? Here's, Here's why we don't do it. Well, I have to have money to start tithing. Who told you that? Who told you you have to, like, well, I need a job? No, you don't. It's just... Have you received something, and can you give something back to God? Freely you have received, now freely give. It's not mine. Everything I have is God's. Are there things you can give? Okay, let's say literally you have zero monies. Nothing. No bitcoins, nothing, okay? Do you have clothes you can donate? Like 50 pairs of shoes, and you know you're going to wear like half of them? Can you donate something? Can you give something? Maybe you do have a job, and pray about Start giving money back to the Lord. Start thinking about giving to a, a, so maybe you don't know this. Like, sometimes, I think also this is an honest thing. I think a lot of times, like, young people like us, we don't like tithing to the church because we have no idea what it does. Like, you're like, all right, I'm going to give $5. Where does it go? I don't know. Like, I guess it pays for that light there or something. Like, what will my $5 do? But this is where we got to remember, Jesus, when he's talking about the woman who cast her two mites, Remember her two little coins. She gave more. Jesus says than the rich people that gave out of their abundance. It's more about not what you give, but how you give. Are you giving cheerfully? Are you giving out of the abundance of your heart? Are you giving out of thankfulness, or are you just saying like, "Uh, "I guess I guess I got to give something, so I'm just gonna do whatever." God wants us to think about, pray about the 68 percent to have that heart of compassion. And though we don't have a lot, how much more does it mean when you're giving out of your lack? That's the whole point of the parable. Not even a parable, it's just a real story. How about using, maybe not your money, your platform? Would you be willing to use your current position in order to reach people? So, here's something to think about. Being pro-life may not be your thing, but it's God's thing, so it should be our thing. Right? So this is from a person who probably doesn't talk about abortion enough in teaching, okay? Um, being for life, that babies don't die, maybe it's not like your passion thing. You know, like, well, you know, like, I'm not against it. I'm just saying, like, I don't talk about that often. Okay, but I think God is passionate about children surviving, so let's be passionate about it. Maybe being against racial discrimination is not your passion, but it's God's passion, so it should be our passion, Can we start thinking outside of the box of maybe this is not my thing, but it doesn't have to be my thing. It's God's thing, so I'll make it my thing. I'm going to start thinking outside of my box using my platform, using my influence, using my resources in order to reach the 68%. Reach the people that don't have stuff. Reach the people that are doing worse than I'm doing. Maybe I'm not like the wisest person, but I have some encouragement to offer, so I'm going to go find that person in youth group. That really doesn't know a lot of people, and I'm going to start encouraging that person. This is what it's all about, because time is short. Now look at verse 3. It says, those who are wise, well actually verse 2, so many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. There will be a resurrection of all the dead people. I know, kind of hard to believe, but some of them will be in everlasting life, and some of them will... Everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So here is where the book of Daniel is closing and saying, man, you could be like somebody who turns other people to God. Imagine the value of that. The value of you having an influence on someone else for eternity. That's like the stars that shine forever and ever. And now, not literally, you know, like look at the Bible and be like, stars are gonna burn out one day. Okay, science sky, that's fine. That's not what he's talking about. But think about this: here's the analogy: people's glory, like superstars and stuff, that fades. People forget, people don't care anymore. But as far as the stars, they've been around a really, really long time. You can still look and like the very same stars that we look out into the sky. Ever since human history has ever existed, humanity, they've looked at the same exact stars. Isn't that crazy? That's going to last. And so when we turn a person to Jesus, we turn a soul that was headed for hell back to the Lord, we have the opportunity to have that influence for eternity. That's something that should excite each and every one of us. And we should think about, man, that's something that I'll never forget. To be able to invest in souls. That's more precious than anything else. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, If you don't evangelize, it's not like you're going to hell for not evangelizing. Definitely not true, okay? But will anything that you do here on the earth actually extend into eternity? Will you have anything that you've done here that on the the day Jesus returns, we can see everything you've amounted, all your work, all of your labor, it's passed through the fire and it makes it to the other side because you've invested in eternal things. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm just not an evangelist. I'm just not good at that. I just, I would love to share Jesus with people. I just don't think I can. It's not a matter of thinking about, like, are you good at it? It's just a matter of, do you want to do it? Do you care about people? Do you see people that are lost and it just breaks your heart? Well, then find a way to just share Jesus with those people. You don't have to be an expert, but you just have that heart of compassion. I'll tell you this. I really believe this. People that are not believers in Jesus... They're way more influenced by the person who's nervous and shaky and walks up to them and talks about Jesus totally unprepared, but they have that heart of compassion than the person who's like the expert debater who walks up to them and says, here's five reasons, and you can take notes on this, why you should believe in God today. You know, People don't like professionalism. They like authenticity. They like you being yourself. And so here, here's the other thing to consider, right? Like if your friends know you and suddenly you approach them one day and you're like, it's game time. I just memorized the Romans road. I'm ready. And then you're going up to them and you're sharing like every Bible verse you know, like out of nowhere, right? Your friends are going to be like, where did you download this information? They're going to be like, that's not you. Who is that guy? That's like completely different than anything that you've ever said before, right? It's better for you to be authentic and say, hey, and this, I've done this before, okay? So you can steal this. I've had friends where I've realized that I completely failed in ever telling them about Jesus. I had certain friends that I was, especially when I was in college and in high school, I wasn't even sure if they knew I was a Christian. And so I was like, oh man, I am so ashamed. I gotta figure out a way to do this. So what I would do is I would say, like, hey, listen, do you mind if we talk about something really important? Like, okay. Like, I have no idea what I'm gonna say, you know? I sit them down and like, okay. So maybe you don't know this about me, but, like, I believe in Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. And I'm sorry I've never really told you that before, but here's what I believe about him. And I'm so serious about this belief that if I don't share with people, you know, I don't know how I could live with myself. If I believe that people that don't know this actually will not be with Jesus, actually will not experience eternal life, not just, you know, at the end of your life, but today experiencing the joy and the peace and why would I hold that back from you? So I feel the need to do that, and, like, I hope you understand. Like, oh, thank you so much for telling me, you know? All of those conversations have always gone well, even when I was just, like, not even confident in what I'm saying. So I'd encourage you to just do the same thing. Say, like, hey, listen, I know, like, this might seem a little awkward and stuff, but I just feel that, like I have to share this with you. You know, my relationship with God is that important to me. And then see what they say. That's what I've done a couple times. It seemed to work. So, do we share at all? That's the real question. We should be thinking about, we should do that. Verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And so you have these two angels after that who um, just asking questions, like, so when is this going to be? And then he has a whole bunch of cryptic things that he says. But I want you to focus on that sentence first. How long shall... Um, Sorry, go back to verse 4. It says, and, and the knowledge shall increase. This is one of the signs of the, the end times, is that as the day draws closer, people are going to know more, but also be more confused. Look at what it says in verse 9. It says, go your way, on, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So two things are going to happen. Wicked people are going to keep on doing wicked things. But those that love the Lord, those that are going to follow after Jesus, are actually going to purify themselves, refine themselves, and they're going to be the ones that understand. Difference between knowledge and understanding here. The people that are just knowing a whole bunch of stuff and have access to knowledge, but they're just so confused. They don't know what's happening. They don't know the signs of the times. They don't know what's happening to the world. So today, I think all of us would be amazed, um, you know, if we, especially if we lived in Daniel's Day, at the technological advancements of our day, right? The fact that every program that you see on your computer is made up of binary code, ones and zeros, that's mind-boggling. The fact that we have the capability to have autopilot cars, could you even envision that 100 years ago? I know I couldn't when I was alive 100 years ago. Planes, to this day... It still freaks me out how we're able to get in an airplane, go like 300 miles an hour, like 10,000 feet in the sky or whatever it is, and just be able to like go there safely. And there's a low percentage that we're going to die. That, to me, freaks me out. Like, how is this possible? But science, scientists, they know how to do this. So if you want to know how these things work, all you have to do is Google it. And it's not even like, it's not mystical. It's not like, oh, we don't know how it works. Yeah, we just all pray before we get on the plane, and then we just board it, and we're like, okay, we hope we make it. Wow! Like, the reason why there's so few plane deaths and accidents and stuff is because everything is done to a science. They have 50,000 people checking these parts and redoing these things and and whatever to make sure everything is going to work, nothing is going to fail. So if you want to know how it works, just Google it. But there are some things Google cannot sufficiently answer. Questions like, what is love? And how does it work? What is at the center of the earth? Nobody knows, apparently. People guess. They theorize. Nobody knows. What is God like? These are questions you can try at Google. You're not going to get a very clear answer. And yet, all of us function with all these complete mysteries every single day. Like, what is the purpose of life? I don't know, but let's keep going. Right? It's miraculous. But it's because we've entered into something that is information overload. We have so many data points being thrown at us every single day that we don't know how to process the information. So I was just reading this book on productivity. And in the book, it talks about how they did this experiment where they have retirement plans. And they were trying to figure out how people choose the best retirement plan. So they gave them like 30 options of retirement plans. And what was fascinating is, When they had, like, one or two options, they are like, cool, I'll choose that plan over that plan. But when they got, like, 30 options, they either hid it away, threw the papers away, or they made bad decisions. They just couldn't deal with 30 decisions. So this is what your brain does, apparently. I'm not a scientist, but read this book, so I don't know. Um, If you're looking at a menu, have you ever noticed that you can very quickly, even if you've never been to a restaurant, you can make a decision relatively fast without even reading the entire menu. Isn't that fascinating? Like you can have a menu with like 50 items on it and you're just like, within two minutes, five minutes, unless you're very indecisive, you're like, yeah, I know what. This is because your brain already has programmed inside of it things that it knows that you like and don't like. So you're going into the menu with these preconceived ideas. Like for me, I'll never eat salad, never eat anything healthy, so I can skip entire sections of the menu. It's pretty amazing. And then your your brain wants, what it wants to do is take all the information and boil it down to like two or three possibilities. So it starts asking yourself these subconscious questions like, do you want vegetables or meat? Easy, meat. Okay, do you want burgers or chicken? Okay, I want a burger. And you, you make these quick decisions all the time to narrow it down. But when you have so many possibilities, And no way to differentiate all the possibilities. You either make bad decisions or you shut it out altogether. This is where we're living today. So check this out. If you want to know how to, uh, that's a bad analogy because most of you don't drive yet. If you want to know, I shouldn't use this one. If you want to know, ah, Okay. <laughs> My brain's moving too fast. Let's say that you want to ask a girl out, okay? You have men, you guys have a number of possibilities, right? Do you go on Google? <laughs> Hopefully not. Some of you do though, right? Like just being honest. Like how to ask a girl out, wiki how, right? Do you go on Google? Do you ask your friends? Do you ask your parents? Right? Do you watch a movie? And just like, that's how they did it. I need to do that, right? How do you you go about these questions? What's interesting is no one's told us how we're supposed to approach the questions. We just have so much information. And you would think that we would know a lot. But now we're just more confused because there's so many possibilities and so many avenues and so many ways to obtain answers, and we're never sure which answers are going to be right, right? When you have questions about, like, think about politics, my goodness, how in the world are you going to find the truth with that one? You're like, do I go on the news? Probably not. Do I go on Facebook? Probably not. Do I listen to my parents? Maybe. Do I listen to my friends? I don't know. You just have so many avenues to find the answers, and we're just overloaded, so we just shut out. This is the, the world that we're living in where people increasingly are increasing in knowledge, have access to knowledge, but they have no idea how to go about the answers. They're just winding up being confused. And this is where our responsibility is to show them the proper avenue to arrive at the answers, and that's found in the Word of God. We approach God who's a trustworthy person. That Forget all the search engines, forget all the books, all the movies, everything else, that you can just ask God who has infinite knowledge. He can give you any answer on any question. All you have to do is ask him. If you ask him, he'll guide you. He'll show you through his Holy Spirit so we don't have to be overwhelmed, overloaded. In a sense, what we need is somebody to guide us, navigate through these situations. So the Spirit teaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says this. It is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So we have the opportunity through his Holy Spirit to understand these things. So let me read a couple confusing things that this chapter has, and we'll be done. Confusing things. Verse 7. So angels, angels are confused, apparently. They're asking questions like, so when's this going to be fulfilled? And it says, uh, verse 7. He swore by him who lives forever, it shall be for a time, time and half a times. And when the people of the holy power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. This is talking about the tribulation period. Okay, a period of seven years, three and a half years of peace, and the three and a half years of tribulation—terrible times where the antichrist is ruling for seven years. He's just like everything's fine. Just kidding. And then, like halfway through, he starts destroying everything. And it's going to be the worst time that's ever been in human history. Okay. And so he says in verse 8, Daniel says, I heard. Well, I didn't understand. What in the heck does that mean? He has no idea. Then he said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. None of, these, none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days Blessed is he who waits and comes to 1,335 days. Okay, what in the world does that mean? Well, 1,290 days is a little over three and a half years. So he says that remember, you're going to have three and a half years of peace in the seven year reign of the Antichrist. Three and a half years into it, about, you're going to have um, the abomination of desolation. He's going to desecrate the temple, he's going to set up an image where people are going to worship. Uh, you know this false image and stuff and he says from the time that the abomination of desolation is set up you can actually count 1,290 days until that's finished okay so that's the midway point if you're still here hopefully you're not hopefully you're raptured by that time but if there's remnants of Christians there after you know they've rejected God but they have a second chance because the rapture happened they're like oh snap that was messed up now they're left behind so three and a half years look at that And then he's like, okay, I can count 1,290 days, and then Jesus will come back. Now, verse 12 was the 1,335 days. So you have a period of 45 days? I don't know. I can't count. Yeah, 45 days. So you have 45 days after that. What is that about? People speculate. No one really knows. But during that time, something will happen. And that's the best I can give you. I don't really know what that means. But I looked at different commentaries. And the conclusion I came to is nobody really knows what that means. So I feel pretty confident in telling you that. So, verse 13 go your way till the end, for you shall rest and you will rise to your inheritance at the end of the days. All right. Conclusion this is it. Every eye up here as we close tonight. So, Daniel was given an inheritance. He's told to enter into his rest at the end of days. He's going to have an inheritance. Do you have confidence tonight of your salvation? That's why I want to ask you. As you read these things, can you say confidently that you know Jesus, that you know him, you know his voice, you know his Holy Spirit, and if you don't, I would ask for you to consider putting your trust in him today. Let's pray. I'm going to call the worship team up, meaning Zach, and just want to have a time of response so you can hit the lights, Nick, but... um. Really want to give you an opportunity right now to remember you know, we just finished the retreat last week, which is great, it's awesome. But I want us to start cultivating.